Thank you, Eileen, for that song. That is one of my favorites, and it fits right along with the theme of what I'll be speaking along on this evening. I've been gripped by this idea of what it is to know God, and I don't believe there's any easy answers. I believe it's something that we have to give ourselves to in completeness in everything that that means to us. Mind, will, and emotion, body, soul, and spirit. All that it is, it takes our total venture in life to know Him, to really know Him. I know what kind of a preacher I would be if I'd had a regular assignment. I'd be a serious preacher. Because out of that first message I preached a couple weeks ago, came about six others. And uh, don't get worried, I'm only going to preach one of them tonight. <laughs> But I, uh, I got an amen from the pastor. I better write that one down. It might be the only one I'll get all night. <laughs> the idea of knowing him. We contrasted at first in that first sermon about the difference between Greek and Hebrew thought. That to a Greek mind, to know meant to figure out, to reason, to know in a classroom, to figure it out with your intellect. But to a Hebrew, to know was through experience. It was the most intimate kind of an experience possible for a human being. And so in the Bible, when we read the term of knowing God, it's an intimate, personal relationship with Him. God is not a person that we can figure out, just like you can't figure out your husband or your wife, but you can begin to know them through experience. Also, we said in that evening service that there are certain ways to know God, that we can know God through life situations, and that is doing all things to His glory. We can know God through the Word, and we must be into the Word if we're to know God. And we're to know God through prayer. We have to communicate. The channel of the Holy Spirit and His lifeline with our lives must be kept open and in order for us to know God. Tonight, I would like to take a text out of the third chapter of the book of Philippians. If you'd like to turn to that, please. Reading. A portion of Scripture, verses 8 through 14. Philippians, the third chapter, verses 8 through 14. Concentrating on verse 10, where Paul said that I might or that I may know him. I'd like for you to stand with me, please, as I read the word of God. Reading from verse 8. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss, just what Eileen was talking about, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which comes from the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And then the text verse, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as, I had, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I also... Also, I am apprehended of Jesus Christ. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, 
forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. I think I made mention before that this verse is captivating to me, that the Apostle Paul, after knowing Christ for many years, would say in this verse, in verse 10, that I may know him. Then he goes on to say how he might know him, because, well, in knowing Christ, Paul never really, at least it's not recorded in Scripture, that he ever lamented the fact or lived with any regrets that he did not personally walk with Christ as one of the disciples. Nor did, did he lament the fact that he didn't listen to him or that he wasn't there and saw the crucifixion. The eternal presence, the person of Jesus Christ, the living Christ was the one whom Paul searched for. Christ in him was greater than Christ walking at his side or Christ being crucified. He didn't want a memory, but he wanted life. And not a pattern was he, what he craved, but he wanted power. So let's look at what Paul was looking for in knowing Christ. And again, just as a reminder, he wanted to know Christ through the experience and through the first thing we see, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. The resurrection to Paul was, was a historical fact, but not in the fact that he just knew it out of a history book, because he said in his writing, it pleased God to reveal his son to me. And that revelation, of course, was something that Jesus encountered with Paul personally. The living Christ had touched him. He had laid hold of his life and touched him to his innermost being. And his whole life had been changed as a result of the living Savior. And yet he speaks as if knowing the power of the resurrection were still a goal out in the future to be attained that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. The power of the resurrection is a present gift to each one of us tonight. It's not a matter of quantity. I think it's a matter of quality, which Paul was speaking about. But first of all, let's ask ourselves the question, where does this power of the resurrection come from? Where does it originate? It begins not with Christ risen in our creed, but it first begins with Christ risen in our lives. And not with immortality as a future gift, but immortality as a present acquisition. Not from anticipation, but from personal experience is the knowledge of the resurrection. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. We're not talking of, of a physical kind of a knowledge or a mental kind of an ascent. We're talking about something that's spiritual, a spiritual knowledge. For there is a realm in life that transcends the physical, that goes beyond that which we can figure out. It is the spiritual. It has to do with spiritual law, not physical law. It has to do with spiritual life and not the natural. One may consider himself totally alive and operating and functioning in this life, but in the Bible sense, in, the, in according to the living word of God, he may be sick and unto death. 
this is my son who was dead and is alive again. He was not just speaking figuratively. He was speaking literally, for his son was morally and spiritually dead, but he is now alive. Eternal life is not a matter of creed, it is a matter of character. And it's exhilarating to sing, Christ is risen. Christ is risen today. But the question for us to consider is, is Christ risen in my life? Do I have the power of the resurrected Christ living within me? This is the proper question for us to consider, but let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. Jeanette Vanderfleet is in the service tonight. Jeanette, would you stand? There's probably a number of people that don't know who you are. And uh, I'm going to share just a little bit of your testimony, if that's all right. Would that be all right with you? Boy, I'm glad she said that. Jeanette had been coming to this church for a couple of weeks. She's really been a churchgoer all of her life. And in my office that day, she said, you know, I've been bothered about my relationship with God. Something has just been disturbing me since I've been coming here, and I don't know what it is. And as I began to share with her, I felt impressed to talk to her about what it was to be born again of the Spirit of God. And I began to ask her certain questions, and the Holy Spirit seemed to lead to talk about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We talked about the sacrificial lamb and how they were, how it was brought to the priest, how the person would lay their hands upon that little lamb and the sin from that person would go down into that lamb and it was immediately killed and sacrificed and that sin was done away with. And God forgave that sin because the blood was sprinkled on the altar. He began to tie that symbolism into the death of Christ and she began to weep. She began to weep because she was hearing the gospel and her mind was coming alive and her faith was being made active in the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of sharing the gospel and what it was to know Jesus on a personal level and to have the Holy Spirit live in your life, I said, Jeanette, that's just exactly what you want to do, isn't it? She said, it sure is. And we prayed and she invited Christ into her life. And I had the privilege then of telling her that the Holy Spirit was now living within her. That essentially she had the power of the resurrection. That Jesus Christ in taking residence in her heart through the power of the Holy Spirit is the resurrected power of Christ. Then she began to have all questions about how do I handle this situation? How do I handle this situation? And this and this. But the answer always came back from Scripture, the power of the Holy Spirit. There's something within you now that you didn't have when you walked through this door. It's the power of the risen Christ. And as we've been doing some follow-up work and, and working with her on, on getting into the Word of God, working with her on prayer, working with her on how to answer some of the questions from the Word of God and deal with certain things, it's amazing that the third appointment that we had for follow-up that I had three things I wanted to outline to, to share with Jeanette. And I said, is there anything that you would like to share with me before uh, I have an opportunity to, to speak or to talk? She said, yes, there are some things that are happening in my life, and she just named them off. One, two, three. See, God was already ahead of me. 
He was working through the Word. He was working through prayer. He was working through obedience because the power of the resurrected Christ was working in her life. She said things like, you probably don't understand this, but as I got into the Gospel of John, I began to understand it for the first time. She said, uh, the reading a phrase like, Jesus is the bread of life, never made sense like it does now. And that's simply because of the power of the resurrected Christ living within her. But Paul knew of this, did he not? Paul had been saved for a number of years. Didn't he know the power of the resurrected Christ? He had been born again. And if we were yet went back to another day, maybe this will help bring it into focus. Let's just imagine now that let's, let's talk for a minute about this power of the resurrected Christ. Let's go to that hillside where there are three crosses. It's Golgotha's hill, and Christ is hanging on the center tree. And we see that it's near the end of the crucifixion, and, and as they plunge the spear into his side, that water and blood flow, and with it his life also. That day is becoming as black as night, and the earth is violently shaking, out of reaction to what is happening to its creator. We, he no longer possessed eternal life because he was now God stooping as low as God possibly could, not only becoming man but becoming sinful man because he took upon himself your sins and mine. And with his last breath he cried, Father, it is finished. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And with that, he gave up the ghost. They took him down from that cross, and his body was lifeless. They took him to a tomb, and there they wrapped him in linen clothes and wrapped him with the linens, the burial linens, and they laid him in that tomb. Now, why did they do that? You say, well, that's an easy answer. But I just wonder sometimes if we get into our mind that Jesus was dead. And for three days he lay there, dead, lifeless, breathless. There was a gloom and despair that hung over the city like death. The disciples were afraid. They were hiding in a room behind locked doors. It was, all hope was gone. The scripture says, and on the third day, God raised him from the dead according to the scriptures. Now, do you realize the power it takes to raise someone from the dead? I have stood with some of you beside lifeless bodies of your loved ones. Could you imagine the power it would take to bring that one back from the dead? A tremendous power. It would be the power of creation itself. That's the power we have in us. That's what Paul wanted to know. The power of his resurrection. It begins with the new birth. But it's an ever-expanding, ever-exploding concept in our mind if we can just get a hold of it. Eternal life after the resurrection was here to stay. Death no longer will have dominion over Jesus. 
No longer. He is finished with it. And if we have faith in Him, and if His life is in us, we too are finished with it. For we have the power of the resurrected Christ in us. And He ever lives making intercession for us and one day will come to claim us as His own. Death and the grave have been swallowed up in victory. And if we could just get a hold of this power that works in us, I think we would say something like Paul said in Romans 6. What shall we then say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? You ever feel like you've been struggling with sin? The answer is you have the power of the resurrected Christ living in you. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. We live by the resurrected power of Christ. Whew. For we have been planted together in the likeness of His death and we shall also, and these words are not in there, in the likeness of His resurrection. It literally says, for we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, but we shall also be of His resurrection. That's the literal translation of that verse that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. That's ultimate victory right there. There's no use for us to struggle anymore in attaining this, that, or the other if we could get a grip on the power of the resurrected Christ. And that's what Paul was talking about. Not that he was struggling with sin, but the fact that he wanted to know more and more this expanding power of the resurrected Christ, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection. The power of His resurrection is available to us at this moment. No wonder Paul said, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And if God be for us, who can be against us? For we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. And the, the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also give life to your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. You know what I think Paul was talking about when he talked about the power of His resurrection was none other than the Holy Spirit Himself. For wasn't it not, was it not the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead? Was it not the Holy Spirit that is the power of His resurrection? I pray that God would help us all to see that the power of the resurrection is available to us and to just dwell and meditate on all that would mean. No wonder John Wesley said, you give me ten men that are full of the Holy Spirit and committed to Christ and I'll turn all of England upside down. The power of the resurrected Christ. But how is this knowledge possible? What would motivate us after we have known Christ personally and His Holy Spirit is in our lives and dynamic and operating, what would motivate us on 
How do we get this expanded knowledge that Paul was talking about that even for him was out in the future? How is that attained? Well, this is where the Scripture begins to bother me. I don't have any trouble preaching about the power of his resurrection. It's when I get to this next part that I have a little difficulty. For he goes on to say, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Sometimes I believe that we want easy answers to the Christian life when there really are none. The power of his resurrection is known and realized, I believe, through the fellowship of his sufferings. This is the part of Scripture that, humanly speaking, we wish were not there. I kind of wish he had just said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Period. But he didn't say that. I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. The concept of suffering is explained in Hebrews 2 when it says Jesus was made a little lower than the angels that by the grace of God he might taste death for every one of us. And it was fitting that God should make him captain of, make the captain of our salvation perfect through suffering. It was all in the plan of God that Jesus should suffer. In fact, in this verse, it said that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. And he told his disciples, no man is greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But before we get too far into this subject of suffering, let me just say that there are briefly three categories of suffering that we can be exposed to in this life. The first category is what I call self-inflicted suffering. That is, if you break a physical law or a spiritual law, you will suffer. There's no way that you can get around God's physical or moral plan. That's just part of it. You can't violate that. And that falls into the principle, you reap what you sow. Jesus said, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Although this is a very real part of life sometimes, it's not, I think, what the kind of suffering that he was referring to in this passage. For he said the fellowship of his suffering. So the second kind of suffering that one could do would be what I would term suffering for his sake. It's the suffering that's, that's mentioned in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And in 1 Peter 4, he said, as he was writing that book, Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And then he explains what those sufferings were. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit and the glory of God rest upon your life. If you're insulted for the name of Christ. And in Romans 8, it talks about the same kind of suffering when it says, If we are his children, then we are heirs with God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings. In order that we may also share in his glory. And he goes on to say, For I consider that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. But this scripture really bothers me. I don't know what it does to you. And I, but I think that's okay for the scripture to bother me. 
Because if I'm not bothered by the Scripture, I'll never come to grips with it. I'll never make any progress in my life. So if there are times when you're reading God's Word and you're bothered, let that be an encouragement to you. Because I think that that's the way God gets through to us sometimes. But could I just ask a question that I ask myself and I'd like to ask it of you? How many of us really suffer for Christ and the gospel's sake? I'm not going out to look for any kind of suffering, and neither are you. That's the human side of it. That's what we try to avoid. We wish it weren't in Scripture when it says, you shall suffer. But we're called to do that. And I'm not speaking of being offensive to others or careless how we use our testimony or violating someone else's freedom just to cram something down their throat. I'm not talking about that kind of suffering. But how many of us suffer persecution because of our stand for Christ? And if we don't, really, could it be that we do not suffer because we simply are not willing to suffer? Oh, no, 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 we say, I'm, I'm willing to suffer. But really to suffer inconvenience, the inconvenience it would take to proclaim the gospel. For really, it's never going to be convenient to proclaim the gospel. But it is the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel that Paul said he was committed to preach. And it is the gospel that Jesus has commissioned each one of us to proclaim to every creature on the earth. But how many of us are regularly involved in the gospel? We have a training program in our church that happens every spring and every fall that really teaches how to skillfully and tactfully share our faith in the gospel the Lord Jesus Christ has entrusted to us. But how many of us have really taken this program seriously to be a part of it? And for those of us that are a part of it, are we involved in sharing the gospel just on Thursday night or is it a lifestyle for us? Now these are questions I think are pertinent to this passage of Scripture. And I'm not trying to heap guilt on anyone tonight. I'm not in that kind of a business. And I don't appreciate anybody else who is in that kind of business. I'm well aware that there are certain things you can preach to people and they feel guilty. And one thing you can say is, how often do you share your faith? And people automatically feel guilty, self-included. And I'm not here to make you feel guilty. Okay, let's have that understanding. I'm here for us to be honest with ourselves and to be honest with God. There are human reasons why we do not share our faith and are involved in the gospel as a lifestyle. And those human reasons, one of them is, not carnal now, just human reasons, one of them is we like to avoid situations that would cause us to suffer. We like to avoid situations that would cause us inconvenience. And we like to avoid in situations that might mean that we'd be persecuted. And those are human reasons. And to those human reasons, we need to face up to those with ourselves and to be honest with, with the person inside and to be honest with God. But I believe if we are to really know him, as Paul was talking about here, that we'll have to suffer with him. That I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. A servant is not above his master. We are called to suffer for Christ.
And this is just as hard for me to come to grips with tonight as it is for you. But I believe that the Word teaches that we will not really know and experience the power of Christ without experiencing the suffering of Christ. Now, I said that there were three types of suffering. The first is self-inflicted. The second is suffering for his sake. And the third is what I call suffering out of life's assignments. Some of us are given in life situations that we must suffer. Some of us will suffer more than others. Some people seem to be born under the cloud of Murphy's Law. Whatever can go wrong will go wrong, and it does go wrong. But you know, sometimes we can kid and say this is Murphy's Law in operation, when in fact, a lot of times it's the law of sin in the world all around us. We just live in that kind of a world that's under the curse. And because of that, some of us and some of you are going through, have gone through and are still going through some rough assignments in life. Some of you suffer physically as a part of your assignment. Some have lost loved ones that are very close to you. Some have had very, very disappointing kinds of situations, emotional scars and hurts that are part of the assignment that you've been given. For this type of suffering, I've never heard a good reason as yet why the righteous suffer. I only know they do. And for some of you that I hold in very high esteem and just would say they are saints of God, you've come to me and said, would you pray with me about this? I'm suffering physically or in another way. And I can't explain to you why. I just don't have the answer why. I just have to say that's part of life's assignment. God has chosen not to heal you in a miraculous way, at least thus far. And for some people, I believe, like the Apostle Paul, he simply chooses not to. But for this type of suffering, there is no better reference to go to than the one we alluded to last time, that is Job. For Job never tries to answer the question, why the righteous suffer. Job answers the question as to how the righteous suffer. And in the suffering, you can see God and you can know God and you can experience the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings in life's assignments as well. Remember the verse that we lifted up from Job 42 was, I have heard thee by hearing, by the hearing of the ear. Until Job had gone through this assignment in life, he had only heard about God with his ear. But after this, after 42 chapters and all the experiences that you know went into Job's life, he then said, But now mine eye has seen thee. And he knew God in a new way. If you are given an assignment in life where you must suffer, let that be a motivation to know God in a brand new way, in a way that you would not have known him apart from that assignment. So in two of the situations of suffering, not the self-inflicted, but the ones that either come through life's assignments or the one that we're called to suffer for the gospel's sake, let that be the way in which we really know God. Not only by prayer and by the word, but we know him through suffering. I thought of how this might apply to teenagers tonight. And really, to be honest, I think if I had the option of trading with some of the teens or some of their parents, I'd trade with the parents. Because some of the teenagers really have to pay the price if they're going to stand up for Christ. 
They are really persecuted for the gospel's sake. I know because I've talked with them. And when they take a stand for Christ, some of them, their friends just write them off. I mean, to the point where they're just excluded. And they they just really are persecuted. Now, some of you in your work situations have it a little better than than some of the rest. I talked to one man a couple weeks ago, and he said, I just really can't be a sanctified Christian. I said, why not? He said, you wouldn't believe the way that they persecuted my job. You know what the answer to that is? The power of the resurrected Christ lives in you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Don't be afraid to take your stand for Christ. And if I were God, do you know the way that I would distribute this, this suffering thing? I would say, if person is called in life situations to suffer, then we'll let them take that assignment. But for others, I want them to suffer for the gospel's sake, those that are not suffering so much physically in these other ways. But you know that the way I've observed that it works, that the people have gone through the most suffering this way are also the ones who are willing to suffer most for the gospel. And so, do not consider, as Peter said, this fiery trial that's coming your way as if something strange were happening to you. God will use that in your life to make you more effective in the kingdom and to reveal himself to you, and you will know God through the power of his resurrection that will sustain you and keep you through that suffering. This makes for a good sermon text because it naturally divides itself into three points. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. This being made conformable unto his death really means being in the form with his death. It means that the same word as if Christ was in the form of a servant. And Christ was in the form of God. And so in that sense, we are to be conformed unto his image. What was the image of Christ? There's no better place to look than in Philippians, the second chapter, in that same book where we took our text. And in verses 5 through 8, it says, Let this attitude or this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. And then it shows how he was conformed or what he did unto death. And here's what he did who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made of himself no reputation, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. There are four things that come out of that little passage. Four, just four phrases. He made no reputation for himself. He was in the form of a servant. He humbled himself and he became obedient. Those four qualities need to be in our lives if we're to understand being conformed to the image of his death. Make of yourself no reputation. Be in the form of a servant. Humble yourself and be obedient. I can't think of any verse that supports this concept any more than Romans 12, 1 and 2 when it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 
And don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove that the will of God for you is good, acceptable, and perfect. What's the world squeezing you into its mold? Take the antithesis of these four things. The world says, make a reputation for yourself. Jesus took upon himself no reputation. The world says, don't be a servant, you're your own master. Call your own shots. Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant. The world says, don't humble yourself. Lift up your own head. Exercise your own authority. But Jesus humbled himself. And the world says, don't obey God. You're a law unto yourself. But Jesus became obedient. Being conformed into the death, his death, is what it means when we speak of in the Nazarene church being sanctified holy. I believe there's no greater emphasis than when we get into the finer points of Scripture, when we talk about being conformed to the death of Jesus Christ, that we begin to understand this cardinal doctrine. What it means of no reputation is really what we call death to self. And we, when we come to that place where we have crucified self, that's death to self, that's I'm not going to make any reputation for myself anymore, I'm going to live for him. Take that second point on the form of a servant. He took upon himself the form of a servant. When I begin to live for other people and not myself, when I begin to lay down my life for the brethren, then I know what it's like to be living the sanctified life, living for others. When we talk about humbling ourselves, that's the place where we say everything that I am, everything that I will be, and all that I have is given to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. And when we talk about becoming obedient like Jesus was, it means to anything that God asked me to do, that's what I'm going to do. This is a lifestyle of one who knows God. Experience the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto the image of his death. said, Jerry, this morning the pastor talked to us about fun. How do you reconcile fun in the Christian life and what you've talked about tonight, suffering, conformable to his death? How do you reconcile those two terms? And I think we need to come to grips with this in one final thought. Look at the verses that talk about suffering. If we are his children, then we are heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share his suffering. But it doesn't stop there. In order that we may also share his glory. If you want to have God's glory on your life, there's no more fun in life than that. There's no more joy in life than that. But what does it take? Suffering. Boy, that's one of the things that's hard. It takes suffering to be joyful and to experience his joy in that regard. And we remembered the one in First Peter, but the last verse said, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And that word means happy. You are happy. Why? For the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. There's where the happiness comes in. There's where the joy comes in. That's where the fun comes in. But ironically, it comes through suffering for his sake. And what did he say on the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for so persecuted they the prophets before you, but rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. When we suffer for Christ's sake, he said to us, just like he says to the disciples, no man has ever given more for me 
that we will not receive more in this life than, yea, in the life to come, eternal life. We simply cannot outgive God. But what does it take to know God? A complete consecration of all we have, body, soul, and spirit, laying down our lives for the brethren. If God says to do something, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it, and you will know him. And in the sufferings of life, let that be motivation to see him in a way that you would never see him without that suffering. Shall we stand together, please? What I've said tonight, I guess, is all a part of the 120 days of spiritual obedience that our pastor has challenged us to. For it simply says, whatever he says to you, do it. Do you know the Lord is your Savior tonight? That is, have you ever experienced that initial power of the resurrection coming into your life? Do you know Him as sanctifier? That has, have you become that living sacrifice? Is He Lord as well as Savior? Are you willing to know Him through suffering? That is, suffering for the gospel's sake. And are you willing to know Him through serving? Being a servant? Are you, be, are you willing to know Him through the crucified life to be conformed to the image of His death of laying down your life for the brethren? You're a great people to preach to and I always look forward to the time when I can share from the Word of God with you. But my prayer for you and for me, for all of us, is that we would know God and that we wouldn't hold back on anything that's going to keep us from knowing Him. And that we would know what it's like whenever he speaks to us just to obey and to do it. And I want us tonight to take a few moments to sing a hymn of invitation. And I know I've preached for a while. I've preached probably too long, longer than I should have. But I want to say this. Jeanette said something to me when I preached last time. She said, Jerry, I was there both services. And she said, I had to grip the back of that seat. You, some of you know what that's like. I had to grip the back of that seat Sunday morning to keep from coming forward. And she said, I would have come forward Sunday night, but you didn't give an invitation. And I'm not going to let that happen again. I appreciated her sharing that with me. I'd like for us to take a hymnal because I don't know what God has said to you through this sermon tonight or through the sermon this morning. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. God might not be talking to you about sin tonight. He might be talking to you about service, about laying down your life for the brethren about willing to suffer for His sake in a way that maybe you've never suffered before. To suffer inconvenience. To suffer persecution for the gospel. And to really give your life for the sake of others. Let's turn to page 281 and sing that first verse together. And if God has spoken to you tonight, I give you an invitation to respond to Him to find this power that we've talked about and allow Him to become real in your life. They'll lead us as we sing together.